0: Struck by the words of that song as we're singing, truth of that song. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but He made us alive through His life. It's great to be with you this morning and to be able to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the next several messages will have that as its theme. Can you think of a better theme than that—the resurrection of Jesus that secures our future bodily resurrection? I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning as we work through a section of Scripture in this chapter, in the heart of the chapter. It's been a joy to be able to preach through 1 Corinthians. As I said, I have taught on 1 Corinthians many times, but one of the disadvantages of a classroom setting was it was always really hard for me to get the whole way through the book. I only had about 40 hours or so to work through all of 1 Corinthians, and so. Normally, by the time I got to chapters 15 and 16, I was going really quickly, surveying you know, last class of the year to say that I finished. Um, But uh, now we get to, to work through this text, and I get to look at passages a little closer than perhaps I've ever looked at them before and get to just marvel at what God has done through the Spirit in leading the Apostle Paul to pen these words for us. Of course, there are whole books that have been written on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in my library, I think I've got about a 900-page book that I could, and, and at times I have read through portions, I can't say I've read the whole thing, but it just works through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 58. Well, I know it's been a long time since we've been in this book, and uh, if you don't remember much about First Corinthians, hopefully you remember at least this, that Paul is answering questions and he's handling problems with the first epistle to the Corinthians. And when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul confronts a problem in the church. Some Corinthians were skeptical and could not come to believe in a bodily resurrection, as they could not believe that God would re-energize, reinvigorate dead corpses, and out of that substance create a new and living body. Some of the Corinthian believers struggled with this, so Paul starts dealing with this issue by laying a theological foundation in verses 1 through 11, and we've already looked at that. He describes the gospel, and he declares that there are two two main components to the gospel of Jesus. The first is the death of Jesus. Remember, the death of Jesus was confirmed. It was a verified fact, and the way we know that Jesus died was through his burial. He was disposed of, like all other corpses. He legitimately died. But then the second part of the gospel message is not only that Jesus died for sins, but that he rose again. This is the second undeniable part of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus. And this is confirmed, starting in verse 3 through 11, it's confirmed by all the multiple eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after his resurrection. And so as Paul lays this foundation, the resurrection of Jesus, we find out is a gospel of the very pillar itself. But one of the questions we should ask then as we get into verse 12 is what uh, the resurrection has to do with the Corinthians' skepticism. If you look in your Bible, at verse 12, we'll read through this passage. And we'll begin to see that some of the Corinthians refuse to believe in a future Bodily resurrection, and Paul is going to demonstrate here how the resurrection of Jesus relates to the resurrection of the future resurrection of physical bodies. Look in your Bible at verse 12. It says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. As we work through this section, uh, verses 12 through 19 actually form the first part of a three part larger section that goes from verse 12 the whole way down to verse 34. Um, In this section, Paul is going to reveal that the Corinthians are denying a future bodily resurrection, and after this, uh, he will point out some of the skeptical questions that they were asking because of their misbelief in, in bodily resurrection. So if you look down at verse 35, for instance, in your Bible, he said, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? So starting at that point, Paul begins to answer those two specific questions that I think some of the Corinthians were asking. I mean, how could dead people be raised, and what sort of body will they have? And so Paul, from verses 35 through the end of the chapter, will answer those cynical questions. But in verses 12 through 34, you've got this section where he just just states the fact that some of the Corinthians were denying a future bodily resurrection. As you get into this section, there's an interesting pattern that you can see. Um, As I said, there are three paragraphs. If you've got a Bible that divides it up this way, you would see that verses 12 through 19, that's a paragraph. Verses 20 through 28, that's the second paragraph. And verses 29 through 34 is your final paragraph. The interesting pattern is this. The first and the last one of those paragraphs Paul will entertain the consequences if Jesus remained in the grave. Okay, so kind of as bookends for the unit, he asks these questions. You can actually see that by all the times he asks the question if, or uses the word if. Uh, Look in your Bible at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection, verse 14, and if Christ, uh, the end of verse 15, if it is true. Verse 16, for if the dead, verse 17, and if Christ had not been raised, and verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. If you're an alert reader to the scriptures and you're reading down through here, you see six times the word if is used in those verses, but it doesn't appear in verses 20 through 28. Something is different about verses 20 through 28. In the first few verses, he's entertaining the consequences of this is what, would it, what life would be like on this planet if Jesus remained in the grave. Look at verses 29 through 34. He returns to using that word if. So if you're paying attention in your Bible and you're circling the word if, you see it three times in verses 29 through 34. For there at that point in the text, he's going to return to this painful consideration for Paul. What if Jesus never rose again? What would that mean? and he identifies a whole host of consequences. Now, one of the questions we should ask at this point then is, well, why would Paul do that? Why would he have a section, what if Christ didn't raise, and then return to a section, what if Christ didn't raise, and why would he separate them? Uh, I think that there are perhaps two good reasons for this. One would be the list is very long. There are a lot of consequences. In the text we're going to look at today, I think I've I've identified seven consequences if Jesus never uh, arose from the dead. And then as you get to the next passage, there'll be more consequences too. It'd be a really long list. But the other reason I think he does this is to highlight the harder the middle of this passage, in verses 20 through 28, in the middle of this text, the text that we're actually going to look at this evening, he changes to what if, and he declares... Uh, but since, or in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I think arranging the text in this way allows Paul to highlight his firm affirmation of Christ's resurrection. Christ has indeed risen from the dead. And in verses 20 through 28, Paul talks about... Or Uh, considers, explores the unbreakable chain of actions or events that have taken place because of the sure fact of Jesus' resurrection. So this morning, we'll look at this first part, and I think as we look at this first part, we'll see the importance of Christ's resurrection. The way this text is arranged, I I, I think in verse 12, he gives first the problem itself in Corinth. Again, look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is an important verse if you're trying to understand the book because occasionally throughout the book, it's just occasionally, but occasionally Paul will reveal when he's heard something that the Corinthians were saying. This just gives us a window into the church at Corinth. Okay, and so I want to make much out of this. Perhaps Chloe's people... Had told Paul about this. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he had heard, or chapter 1, he had heard a report from Chloe's people that there was division in the church. Perhaps Chloe's people also told them that some were denying a future bodily resurrection. Or perhaps it's the three travelers that made their way to the Apostle Paul uh, that you could read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We don't know for sure how he heard this. Regardless, some professing believers in Corinth were skeptical about a future resurrection of believers. While we don't have any reason to think that this is a Corinthian slogan here in this text, there's no markers like in other places. If this was a slogan, it'd be something like this. Some of the Corinthians were saying, no resurrection, no bodily resurrection. I accept that. Before we go much further in this text, I think one of the reasons this passage, this consideration this morning, as painful as it may be to, to briefly consider what it would be like if Jesus didn't raise. One of the reasons this would be helpful to us is to understand the clear connection that Paul makes in this text between doctrine, or what you believe, and how you live. As a matter of fact, Paul's already made this point. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for a moment. Flip back there in your Bibles. I just want to remind you of this one passage that I think foreshadows this entire chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 13. And we'll see how many of you paid attention when I told you to do something in your Bibles. Verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. If you remember, I told you months ago now that you should take the parentheses around that passage and you should extend the end quote to after the word other. For this is a Corinthian slogan. This is what they were saying. They were saying, Paul, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God's going to destroy one and the other. He's going to destroy food, meat. It will not survive beyond the great upheaval when God comes to destroy the world. And it will not. And God will destroy bodies. Continue to read to see how they argue from that. Uh, or how Paul, how Paul responds to that. Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So Paul's clear answer is, uh, you can't do whatever you want with your body because you think, you think that it won't be resurrected. The body is not intended for immorality, but for the Lord. And then notice the very next verse. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And so Paul in this section gives a very clear answer. The Corinthians' skeptical denial of this doctrine led them to abuse their bodies in selfish, immoral indulgence. This body is just a shack. It doesn't matter what I do with it. I can do whatever I want with it. I can be immoral. I can do other things like this. But Paul's clear answer comes in verse 14. God will raise us like he did Christ. I'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think that answer is expanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of the greatest benefits of working through this chapter is it will warn us against the dangers associated with skepticism regarding what God's word sets. Skepticism regarding some theological doctrine or truth. I want to speak just for a moment before we get into verse 13 about the dangers associated with skepticism, with skepticism for believers. I think skepticism is a serious error that believers must avoid. I think this is going to be hard for us for a few reasons. One, I think because of sin, because of Adam's sin, I think we are by nature skeptical. We, 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 if left unchecked, can be cynical about what God says, what God does. And I would add to that I think we live in a culture that exalts skepticism. Our culture loves it when someone attacks authority or, understa- or undermines established norms, even if those norms are built on biblical truth. Our culture loves this. In my experience, then, it's very easy for believers as well, living in an era of negativity and skepticism and deconstruction to do the same thing, only to do it with God's truth, some teaching in the Bible. We at times might call it sarcastic humor, but sometimes it's much more than sarcasm. It's driven by mistrust or an unwillingness to believe what God has said in his word about another believer, about other believers, or about his word. So we might sit back in judgment on the Corinthian believers here who are denying a future bodily resurrection, but we also must realize that skepticism, cynicism, and negativity are the opposite of faith. Listen, as a preacher, I would love to be known by my family and by the church as a man who believes God and his word not as a person who's constantly calling to question in the midst of difficulty and trial whether we can trust God and know him. So a believer begins to question God's abiding presence in their lives. And what has God said? He said, he will never leave us nor forsake us. We go through a trial and we begin to falter because we feel that God is aloof or he's disconnected or he's not there. And that lack of faith to believe what God said in his word leads us to a whole host of other sins. We may grow anxious, fearful, or bitter. And the truth is, what the the real truth is, is we're, we're acting off of what we believe. We believe at that moment that God is not there, that he's aloof, he's disconnected. And so that causes us to sin in many different ways. Another believer perhaps has been wounded by a fellow believer they thought they could trust. And so if this believer is not careful, he begins to look at every other believer through the lens and he begins to become hurtful and critical and cynical of others. And so when some believer promises something they think in their heart, yeah, right. I mean, this isn't gonna happen. I've, I've, I've trusted people before and they fail to believe what the Bible says about the way we should treat other believers. The main point of the illustrations I give to you here is to show that a skeptical failure to believe what God says in his word is sin in and of itself. But 1 Corinthians 15 will demonstrate that it normally leads to other sins as well. You get that? When we refuse to live a life in which we believe what God says in his word, that is a sin, but then it normally leads to a whole host of other sins. The truth is that we do what we do because of what we believe about God and his word. And so as we go through this text, it's my prayer that God will help us learn from the Corinthians. So in verse 12, the point that he's making here with the Corinthians is, that it is impossible for the Corinthians to maintain faith in Jesus' resurrection if there is no such thing as a, future or as a bodily resurrection. The point that he's making is pretty simple. Okay? You cannot believe that Jesus rose from the dead if you're saying there's no such thing as people raising from the dead. But then what he does is he goes into a whole host of consequences that follow from that false premise, that false belief. Okay, and so then starting verses 13 through 19, actually the rest of the text, I think, is full of consequences of whether, you know, if Jesus did not raise from the dead. Now, to better understand this, I want to point out one thing to you. Look in your Bible, verse 13. Look in your Bible, it says, uh, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now look at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay, so what Paul does in this section is he repeats that verse almost verbatim. It's like he's saying the same exact thing. Okay, and what he does is he forms two sections here. Then verses 13 through 15 will be a set of contrast, and then he repeats it. Okay, he repeats the, the opening slogan, but if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And then let me give you a second set of contrasts that follow or a second set of consequences that follow right after that. So there are two sets of consequences. Verse 14, we can begin to see the first set of consequences. Look in your Bible at verse 14. <clears throat> Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, then consequence number one, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if if it is true that the dead are raised. The first consequence Paul talks about is the fact that he says our preaching would be in vain. Understand this passage, uh, identifying who the pronouns are out here, it, it would be important. He says our preaching. A little bit later on, he says your faith. When he says our preaching, I think he's talking about himself and the other apostles, perhaps his witnesses that he just talked about in verses uh, really 3 or 4 through 11 there, at the beginning of part of the passage. He says, okay, the first consequence is our preaching, the early preaching of the apostles or these eyewitnesses of the testimony of Jesus Christ would be empty. Okay. Uh, the, act, the actual words used here uh, could be translated, it would be in vain. And uh, by this, I think that Paul is saying it'd be empty in the sense of without any basis. Our preaching would have no solid foundation or basis to to proclaim the message that we do. Uh, He continues then with the next consequence when he uses the same exact word to describe their faith. Not only would our preaching be empty without basis, so would your faith. Your faith would be empty. Here Paul uses this same word, I think, to describe the consequence for the Corinthians. If Christ did not rise from the dead, they, and and us by extension, we would have no solid foundation for our faith. This leads to a third consequence that occurs in the very next verse, when his considerations go, goes back to the early preachers of the gospel. And this time, I think he goes further in their criticism of them. He says, uh, not only would our preaching be completely without any basis, we also would be false witnesses of God. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. This means that all of the witnesses listed above would be liars and would be false witnesses to the work of God if Christ did not raise. If this is true, then deceit would be the only thing that kept the message of Jesus alive. It's not like you can say, well, if the resurrection is true, these these can still be good men. No, they're liars. They're false witnesses of God. In other words, if the resurrection is not true, this whole thing would be a hoax put on by the deceit and the lying of wicked men. That leads to a second set of consequences in verses 16 through 18. And look with me at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Okay, so this new set of consequences has three as well. There were three before, but three here. The first consequence, or consequence number four, depending on how you're counting, is your faith would be futile. Now here Paul uses a different word than he used earlier. Earlier he said your faith would be empty, it'd be without any basis. Now he says it'd be futile. I think this description, he kind of descends a little bit lower here, and he says that their faith would be completely useless or worthless. This word here, uh, futile, is, is not used very frequently in the New Testament at all. It's used only six times. But I think a few of these other passages would, would help us understand it a bit more. You don't, you don't need to turn there. I'll just kind of overview some of these other texts to you. Uh, for instance, this word is used, this word "feudal" is used in Acts 14 there Luke uses it of Paul's words to some citizens of the city of Lystra who were attempting to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. I don't know if you remember this story in Acts 14. And so uh, Paul and Barnabas do some significant things and the, the whole city responds by trying to exalt these two men as gods. And Paul knows that he cannot allow them to worship him as God. I mean, all you gotta do is read a little earlier in Acts to see what happens when someone receives the glory that God deserves. In Acts 14, uh, Paul sees this, and and the city wants to do certain things. They want to uh, exalt Paul, offer worship to him. They want to offer sacrifices in his honor. They want to slay oxen and offer them upon a sacrifice. And they want to hang garlands on the gates of the city in honor of Paul and Barnabas. And Paul's response, or what Paul says, he says, such expressions of worship are completely worthless. They're absolutely futile, and they must never be given in honor of him. This is the same word that Paul will use here in this passage. In Titus chapter 3, Paul uh, says to avoid arguing about genealogies and discussions and endless quarrels about the law, for those discussions are completely futile, absolutely profitless. You ever been in a long discussion before arguing with someone just and near the middle to end of the discussion, you just knew, this is going nowhere. What an absolute waste of time. Remember some of the conversations in in the the dorms at Bible college where, where men were, young men were debating all of the minutiae of theology, down to the little dots and the little... Cre- at, at, at a certain point, you know, even as a student, I just stood up and just left. I mean, this is going nowhere. So when Paul says here, if Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, your faith would be completely worthless. This is a powerful point. I mean, if Christ was still a corpse in the grave, we would have no hope. Our faith would get us nowhere because people are only made right by God on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We could go through the book of Romans and I could see you over and over and over again. In that book, Paul describes the fact that without the resurrection there would be no forgiveness of sins. As a matter of fact, in our list, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here, the very next consequence of, Jesus, of no resurrection is, and you would still be in your sins. You'd still be in your sins. So Paul's saying here, if, if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, you are not right with God, nor can you be. There'd be no atonement, no covering, no forgiveness for sins. And then finally he leads to a sixth consequence here. Paul speaks of another group of people in verse 18. Look in your Bible at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Here Paul entertains the effect of no resurrection on friends and family who have already passed away in verse 18. He says that these people then have perished. And by that, he means more than simply that they've died, because we already know that. He's already said they've already fallen asleep, but now he says if no resurrection, they've perished, meaning something like uh, they, they experience nothing but possibly torment or hellfire or deterioration In the grave. The consequences of Jesus remaining in the grave affect those who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the early preachers. It also affects two groups of believers. It affects living believers. There'd be no hope for forgiveness of sins. It affects those who died in Christ, they would be perishing. So as we're looking through this text, you see all these consequences. And then Paul ends with what I'm going to call in verse 19. The ultimate consequence, the ultimate consequence, at least look at verse 19. It says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. I use the term ultimate here in that this is where the passage is moving. This is where it's going to close. This is the conclusion that Paul will make here. This final consequence here, in this final consequence, Paul cuts right to the chase. He says, if, if Jesus did not rise, we would be the most pitiful people on this planet. In other words, if all that we have done in this life is to hope in Christ, and Christ did not rise from the dead, we are most to be pitied. This word pitied here is the only time that Paul will use the word that he uses. It's a powerful word that could, be, could also be translated, we are miserable. We would be miserable, deserving the pity of every other person on this planet. Now, why is that true? Well, I think it's true of the Apostle Paul. I know that for sure, because of the sort of life he lived in response to the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, for a moment, just for a brief moment, turn over in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I just want to highlight with you some of the ways that Paul, actually 2 Corinthians 6, highlights some of the ways that Paul describes to these Corinthian believers later on the hardships that he endured because of his faith in Jesus Christ. We'll just read a few of the verses, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4. Paul says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. It's the sort of life that Paul lived in response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I continued the list. 2 Corinthians, Paul gives four of these suffering passages where he recalls with the Corinthians the things that he went through as an apostle. And this is uh, the last one. Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 24, he says, "Five times I received at the hands of the Jew forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and am I not weak? Who is made to fall, and am I not indignant? As you read the life of the apostle Paul, you could understand how if the world would look on this man and they would see all the suffering and the chastisement or the punishment that he endured, Beatings, stripes, afflictions, perils, shipwrecks. And the list goes on and on. I mean, what a list, right? You can see from the perspective of the world, if they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they look at Paul and they say, man, we should pity this guy. He is actually most to be pitied because I think he really believes that resurrection stuff with all of his heart. I mean, look at at everything he goes through. So sometimes I think that this last indictment, this last consequence of no resurrection is hard for the American church to really process. Because for us, if there was no resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the world's perspective might be a little bit different than it was of Paul. Well, they're still good people. They're doing some moral things. They've got a relatively nice lifestyle, decent home? I guess it's not the worst thing in the world to, be, to, to believe a lie like that. And so I want to close by asking you two questions. First of all, the question I ask you is this, are you living a life like this? I mean, would lost people say that your life looks stupid? And would they say, man, when I consider that person's values and priorities and their goals and their plans and their lifestyle, that's crazy. Or are you more interested in a home, a car, an entertainment system, a gaming system, than, are, than you are living like Paul? And so as we think about our own lives, I think that this is an indictment of American Christianity. We not, may not be, face the shipwrecks. We might not face all of the extreme things, but the world should look on us as people who have hope only in Christ and say we should really pity those people because they've arranged their whole life around Jesus. And it's all based upon the resurrection. So are you living a life like this? And then finally, do you see the importance of Christ's resurrection? Do you see the importance of Christ's resurrection? I mean, there was a moment in time where Christ lay as a lifeless corpse in a tomb. But then the Holy Spirit brought a breath and life. And that moment changed everything for us. Lost in sin, dead in trespasses and sins. But at that moment, victory was secured through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The resurrection forms our message. It empowers our faith as a basis to go to heaven. It covers our sins it guarantees that our deceased loved ones will be raised and it should stir us to abandon all things for him. We sang this morning, our sins and trespasses are covered because of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful, we're so very thankful for that moment in history when the Spirit brought life to Christ. Securing our victory. It's the same Godhead who breathed the breath of life into dust to make human beings in creation. But Lord, in Christ is life from the dead, the power, the creative power of God to bring life from death, bring defeat over sin, provide the basis for our salvation. Lord, would you strengthen our confidence and belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning, I've attempted to demonstrate why it's important. I've attempted to work through the text that Paul gives us here and to, to, to think of all the consequences if Jesus would not have resurrected. Lord, may we appreciate this and then may our lives reflect our strong, profound belief in this doctrine. Lord, help us not to live day by day without thinking about the importance of this doctrine and the the importance of the fact that one day, too, we will be resurrected. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.